I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open open mind. Hello and welcome to To the Republic, a show dedicated to civics, history, and U.S. institutions. I am host Jake, and I have guests here with me today, Dr. Donna Sinclair and John Oberg of Filibusters, also on KXRW. Absent is Jeff Lopez, my other co-host. He is not able to make it today, but we will soldier on without him. Um, thank you guys both for being here today and helping us out to get this, uh, this, uh, this episode, you know, finished and done with. So I will just, uh, turn over the mics to you guys if you want to introduce yourselves. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it. This is John Oberg with Filibusters and I've been wanting to come on to your show. It's, uh, really exciting to have you here as part of the KXRW family and, uh, thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Um, Hi, Jake. This is great. I'm really happy to be here. I've been listening to your show, and I've been enjoying it. And I've also wanted to come on to it because uh, my doctorate is in urban studies, and I focused on policy issues. And so um, I also have a degree in environmental history and am really interested in what the topic will be today. So thanks for inviting me. And I'm sorry Jeff isn't here because that would be a lot of fun, (laughs) but I'm glad to be here with the two of you. Well, yes. Thank you guys so much. It was just kind of a last... this. With all the stuff that Jeff and I have going on, it just kind of everything came to a head at one time, and we just kind of got behind. So we're super happy you guys are able to bail us out a little bit. Um, so I think we'll just uh, introduce a topic, and that is environmental policy, uh, both in the both in the U.S. context, and then also I think at the end of the show we're going to look at uh, inter- international institutions and how the U.S. plays a role within those and how they're trying to combat the issue of climate change. Um, so in the first segment, we're going to look at U.S. environmental policy and how farming practices have affected the environment um, by specifically looking at the Dust Bowl era in the 1930s. In the second segment, uh, we'll look at current environmental policies and deregulation um, and then some philosophy associated with that and different uh, policy tools that the U.S. government uses to implement that policy. And in the third segment, um, as I before mentioned, we'll be looking at uh, international institutions that deal with climate change. But first, I, um, I wanted to have Donna uh, run her oral history exercise that she runs with her students. Um, I think it's a good way to get the conversation going a little bit. So if you wanted to uh, take over with that. Sure. Um, So one of the things I thought about when Jake introduced this issue is my own experience with environmental history and um, my awareness of the environment. And so I thought it might be useful for all of us to kind of say, well, how did we become aware of environmental issues in the first place? Um, so, uh, John, you said you had a good story. So why don't we start with you? Because I might end up dominating and I don't want to do that. Oh yeah, no worries. I mean, the, I would say the first time that I became aware of the environment was when I was a child. I grew up down in Los Angeles in the early to mid seventies and the smog just was so bad down there that we actually in the summertime would have play days. Uh, where we would have to stay inside because the uh, the smog was so thick and everything that they they recommended that children not go outside. And then I also lived um, in Pasadena, and um, I forget the name of the mountain range there, but I, I do remember one time where the entire mountain range was on fire, 
and just the smoke and everything was so thick in that I mean you had to stay inside you couldn't go wow. outside yeah and it was just uh uh you know and as a young kid I was like 6 years old when this was going on and it just was um uh that would I would say that was my first awareness of how the environment could affect my little being as it as it yeah. were Right, right. That's a that's a crazy story. I can, I mean, I, I we've seen the Eagle Creek fire, right? And but I don't think I've ever, I've really never kind of left um, this area. So dealing with smog and stuff is so foreign to me. Right. Um, yeah, that's it's a completely different, uh, completely different uh, world for for me because we I've grown up with such clean air that it would be weird to live in a place where it's not easy to breathe. Um, for me, it was um, actually just through education. Um, I took, when I was at Clark College, I took uh, some oceanography and astronomy classes, and that kind of introduced me to, uh, to climate science, a little, you know, introductory level. And then it was really once I got to WC Vancouver and taking a uh, global challenges course with um, uh, Dr. Lopez there, and in, in explaining, um, you know, what is a global challenge and trying to get sovereign nation states to work towards something, and, you know, looking at issues at a global perspective, and, you know, climate change and the environment is really a global, um, you know, global challenge. Not one state it, it itself can, you know, affect policy on a, on the level that needs to be done to actually, you know, create change. Um, and then it was also then your your Pacific Northwest history that I took with you at WC Vancouver, Doctor, um, and that was um, learning how individuals interact with their environment and how policy is. Uh, f- has foundational effects on one's perception of self, you know, within their place and everything like that. So understanding how Native Americans interacted with their environment and how that's changed over time due to policy, you know, you know, such as the dams and, and other, thing, other things like that, really kind of put all of that into perspective and really kind of, you know, got me into researching more of the environment and, you know, climate change science and stuff like that. Oh, that's great. Well, I always like to hear that there was some impact from a class that I took. <laughs> um, I have kind of three elements that um, impacted my understanding of the environment. So the very first time I remember kind of being aware, um, as you were, John, of this this sort of larger-than-me world, um, I was already 16 years old. So it was May 18th, 1980, when Mount St. Helens blew. Oh, wow. And, um, and so – and I lived here – um, you weren't born yet, Jake. No. So, <laughs> so you don't remember this, but um, it was just kind of amazing to think of the power of the mountain to completely reshape a landscape on Mount St. Helens. Mm-hmm. And so um, I happened to be in Tacoma um, the night that it happened and woke up in the morning and heard about this and couldn't get home to get to work in time. So, of course, it was all about me because I was 16 years old. <laughs> um, but I remember just kind of being aware of that. So, um, that really introduced this idea that the world sort of existed separate from us. Okay. Um, and then the second thing was in uh, the 1980s, I was a young army wife. And so uh, I remember living on post in uh, at Fort Drum, New York, and being told that we had to uh, tie up our newspapers for recycling rather than throwing them away. And as a staunch uh, sort of libertarian-ish kind of person, I thought... They shouldn't be able to tell me what I'm going to do with my <laughs> newspapers. Um, that, that was kind of like the first time I remember thinking about regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to do it because in the Army, you do what they say. It's yeah. just that simple. Um, I'd already also spent some time in Germany where I noticed things like 
they didn't dye their their toilet paper with bleach. Um, their the forests weren't anything like being here. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were sustainable forests, but they'd also been impacted by disease. Okay. So, um, so that's the the kind of the second piece. It's connected to learning. Um, in 1988, I had a baby. And so I'll try not to make this too long because it's really what got me into environmental issues and environmental policy. Um, There was what's called the Alar Scare. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm, I haven't. um, It was um, this sort of widespread media uh, recognition, and I don't know if you remember this, John, of the fact that there were pesticides in um, on apples that actually ended up in baby food. Okay, you remember that? Oh, wow. So I had a baby at the time. <laughs> and this was in 1988? This was in, ni- well, okay. I think she was born in 1988, and okay. I remember where I was. So um, so I, I haven't gone back to look at that. But that kind of really created a completely different awareness of the environment. And, yeah, I bet. Um, I had a, a child who was three and a half years old at the time, and then I had this new baby. And all of a sudden, I started thinking, oh, my God. Um, there are all these issues that I should address. And so this is kind of a funny story. It comes to education, which was where you came in. Um, so from that time period, um, I started learning about things like the fact that a disposable diaper would take 500 years to actually disintegrate. <laughs> I'm, ki- I'm not kidding. I mean, think about all the disposable diapers. Yeah. It's disgusting. And it, it's funny that they you are know, disposable <laughs> and people think, you know, the marketing behind that is that, oh, I'm, I'm actually being, you know, environmentally friendly by buying a disposable diaper, but really <laughs> this, it takes 500 years. So it's, you know, how good right. for the environment really are you being yeah. right because the, so so the other piece of that is um in 1990 1990 i went back to school and so at that point um i took environmental biology and that's what really led me into a better scientific understanding of the environment so i had this experience and i decided to use cloth diapers with my um with my second baby and i tried buying the kind of you know the the Um, diapers that have cotton, that have starch in them and that supposedly disintegrate faster. So one of the first experiments that I did in environmental biology was a diaper experiment. (laughs) (laughs) So I had, I I filled up these jars with, um, with dirt and put them in my laundry room, which was kind of dark. And I used a piece of a cloth diaper, um, a piece of a baby wipe, a piece of a disposable diaper that was supposedly um, would disintegrate sooner. And then um, I already knew how long the other diapers would last. And I found that the cloth that the cloth diaper actually um, over the course of it was a 10 week course at Clark, just Mm -hmm. like you, um, over the course of however many weeks um, actually was almost completely disintegrated when I added a little bit of water to it every day. Really? So, um, so that really convinced me that I needed to pay more attention. So I started recycling before recycling was something that everybody did. And um, anyway, I could go on and on about no. this, but it really, um, it really is what introduced me to um, the idea of the environment. And I also watched the commercialization of the environmental movement um, right around the same time in the 1990s. I kind of watched that happen okay. as I was trying to practice sustainable practices. Yeah, it's interesting how you know, something major happens and then there's like, you know, there's this period of response afterwards. And I think, um, that happens, especially we'll, we'll get into the, to the, to the Dust Bowl era, but it really started, um, that period of time really started a bunch of, you know, federal involvement within the environment. And that really kind of culminates in the 1970s with the creation of the EPA. Um, That kind of gets me into our first segment, and that is um, talking about the Dust Bowl and then kind of the subsequent um, federal government policies that have come in the pursu- in the preceding decades. 
when I took a uh, U.S. Uh, U.S. history class, you had us read a book by Timothy Egan about the Dust Bowl, and he really went in depth about how the federal government initially tried to correct for um, the environmental environmental impact of the Dust Bowl, and then once FDR became came into power, um, there was some definite dif- differences on how the the federal government became much more uh, involved with that process. Do you want to go over kind of how that kind of transpired? Sure. Um, Before we talk about what the federal government did to deal with the crisis of the Dust Bowl, which is when there were, you know, tons, literally tons of dirt dumped across the um, United States because of what was happening in the Dust Bowl area, which includes Oklahoma, Texas, um, and, you know, all the way through up to Montana. Um, Basically, there had been so much farming that it loosened the soil And the federal government actually caused that in the first place. So I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, But even further back, you have the Homestead Act. So the federal government has actually was involved in the distribution of land from the very beginning um, of this nation Mm -hmm. to encourage farming. So we have this idea of the individualistic um, farmer as the American ideal. And that really was facilitated by the federal government. So that's really important to understand because um, at the turn of the century, so in 1910, uh, the price of wheat was at about 80 cents a a bushel. Um, Five years later, world grain supplies were pinched by the Great War, so World War I. Um, prices had more than doubled, and uh, farmers increased production by 50% in order to meet those needs. Um, so um, when the Turkish Navy Navy um, blocked the Dardanelles, the United States stepped in to supply grain that had previously come from Russia. So I don't know if you remember that connection, mm-hmm. but there were these international connections um, as early as the beginning of the 20th century that had to do with our Um, our supplies of wheat. So the government issued a proclamation to the Plains, and they said, plant more wheat to win the war. So so then what happened is that the government provided bank loans, right? So um, there were bank loans. Um, In 1916, the Federal Farm Loan Act actually, essentially, as Egan puts it, he said, put banks on the Plains. Um, There were 40-year loans at 6% interest. Now, before that, people, you know, they might have uh, applied for a homestead, paid $1.50 per acre, um, proved up after five years after they planted, they planted their lands, but they owned things outright. Mm -hmm. So this idea of mortgaging yourself... At the er, in the early 20th century is something that was relatively new for most average Americans. Okay, Um, but the government was was actually um, pushing for this. So they'd they'd say borrow five thousand dollars, and then the payments were less than thirty five dollars a month. So anybody with a John Deere tractor now remember this is also the beginning of mechanization on the plains, and so there was a a lot of encouragement for people um, to start planting massive amounts of wheat. And do you remember what happened after that with all that wheat? Oh, once I'm going to test you here, Jake. (laughs) (laughs) If I if I remember correctly, yeah, it was. um, You're getting graded on this after they well tilling up of all that grassland that had kept the soil down for such a long time. Once once drought hit, um, and high you know the high I think it was a bunch of high wind started blowing all that topsoil off. Am I getting Am I getting this right? Yes. Okay. You're absolutely right. And then and and then also like the price guarantees for wheat um, to try to stem when the Great Depression hit, the price guarantees for wheat still kept. Prices artificially high, which still I think st- continued to um, promote the growth. You know, the further you know, 
destruction of that of that um, that of that arable farm. Oh, well, not non-arable farmland. And I, there was also some of the um, propaganda I found from this, like that he that Egan brings up in his book about how they could just you know you could strike it rich super quickly, and then also um, the tilling the tilling of the land with the you know then putting dust in the air would create rain clouds. Um, and then that you know, rain so follows the plow. Yeah. So don't worry about there not being any sort of irrigation or natural water source. You can create the water to grow your wheat by tilling up the land. I thought that was you know super interesting how um, how that kind of manifested. Right. Well, and there's also the Ogallala Aquifer, which later on by the 1970s became a significant problem. Okay. So in 1917, there were about 45 million acres of wheat that were harvested nationwide. By 1919, over 75 million acres were put into production. So it was up nearly 70%. And that's a huge amount. Um, As I said, the tractor changed everything for farmers. Mm -hmm. And so there were huge amounts of wheat that were produced. And then essentially the government started doing what it does to this day, which was paying farmers not to sell the wheat because the price was so low. Okay. And that caused international problems as well. Mm. And so, as you said, it essentially lifted the topsoil off of the, off the ground. Um, so um, prior to that, you had grasslands all over the Great Plains. And all of this farming tore up the grasslands. And those grasslands ended up in dirt and topsoil in New York City, for example. Wow. Um, in May of 1934, there were pieces of the Great Plains all over the country. Um, 12 million tons of dust fell in Chicago, New York, and D.C. Um, ships off the Atlantic coast actually were coated in brown 300 miles offshore. So this was a national disaster, um, actually an environmental disaster um, of epic proportions. So on Black Sunday, um, April 14th, 1935, the storm carried two times as much dirt as was dug out of the Panama Canal. Wow. Yeah. So the Dust Bowl Bowl covered 100 million acres at its peak, and its epicenter was in the Southern Plains. Okay. Um, And so uh, this is John's area. More than 250,000 people fled the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. They were called the Exodusters. Um, Two-thirds of those people actually stayed. So... Wow. You were going to make those Grapes of Wrath references, or Henry well, Ford you know, Henry Fonda references. Gotta love Henry Fonda. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I mean, that, that's, you know, and there's that iconic picture of the lady and her two kids um, sitting outside of her, her cottage or, or home or whatever yeah. in Life magazine that just kind of epitomized the despair that people were feeling at that time. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So this went along with the Great Depression. Yeah. So all of this is happening at the same time, and it's actually part of what you may recall from Pacific Northwest history is it's part of how we ended up with a um, a larger population here in the Pacific Northwest. People went to California. They came to the Pacific Northwest. They came to um, the Pacific Northwest to deal with dams. Um, so did you want to talk a little bit more about some of the policies that FDR implemented, or do you have some things you'd like to say, Jake? Oh, I, would, I mean, so once... Once FDR took office, he took a more direct approach, whereas Hoover, the previous administration, had kind of was hoping that a self-correction would would take place, and that over time that you know market forces could um, correct for you know for this you know natural devastation, both in the economy and in the environment. Um, but really, FDR took a much more um, a, a much different approach by 
trying to by investing creating the creating the new you know obviously the new deal had had a profound effect on bringing uh jobs back to to that region um so it's just it's interesting you know this conversation we're having how environment and policy affects so much intervent uh so much on the individual level um so anyway i think uh we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back we're going to talk more about this topic the dust bowl and you know the subsequent uh, u.s policies on on the environment and then kind of get into a little bit of ph- uh, philosophy you've been listening to, to to the republic on kxrw and i'm jake Jokum. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at BoomerangTherapyWorks.com, where exercise is medicine. KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges and edibles, to CBD topicals, oils and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. Support for KXRW comes from the Ridgefield Raptors, Southwest Washington's own college summer wood bat baseball team, now offering group night packages. To find out more information on pricing and how to spend a night at the ballpark with your family, friends, coworkers, sports league, or special group, just call 360-887-0787 or visit the website at ridgefieldraptors.com. That's ridgefieldraptors.com. Welcome back to To The Republic. I am Jake, and I am joined by Dr. Donna Sinclair and John Oberg of Filibusters, who is, which is also a show on KXRW. Um, before the break, we talked about uh, the end of the Dust Bowl and then also U.S. environmental policy. Um, and I think we're going to continue that conversation here a little bit. So um, during the break, you and I were talking about um, kind of some of the intimate stories that uh, came out of the Dust Bowl era and um, how that influenced policy. Okay, so um, one of the things that is really great about Timothy Egan's book and about his writing, so I'm, I'm happy to promote Timothy Egan because he's a great writer and he's written about the Irish, he's written about the Pacific Northwest um, in a book called The Good Rain. Um, but in the Dust Bowl book, uh, one of the things he does is he interviews people and he talks to them about their experiences. Um, so he really is able to grasp the variety of experiences that people had on the plains. And some of the experiences that stand out the most to me are the stories about how the Dust Bowl era affected people literally for from 1929 um, right on through the mid-1930s, mid to late 1930s, how they affected people personally. And so there two-thirds of people stayed in the Dust Bowl area on the Great Plains. 
um, those people literally had to daily um, not just clean their houses, but wipe dirt off their tables. Um, I live by a freeway right now, and I noticed that um, I'm getting little particulates inside the house far more than when I was living uh, in the neighborhood that was a mile away from the hmm. freeway. Interesting. Um, I'm just staying there temporarily right now. Um, so with the Dust Bowl, people were literally um, dealing with a sort of a smog. I'd maybe I'd think about the smog that you described, John. Right. Um, the sort of smog that was made up of dirt. And so they had to tape their windows shut, tape their doors shut. Um, and people got what was called dust pneumonia, which was particularly hard on babies and on older people. Um, so there's one story in particular of a woman who had a baby. She had tried for a long time to have a baby. She finally had a baby. Um, and this baby died within the first year because of dust pneumonia. Tragic. Um, it, was, it was tragic. And at the same time, her grandmother died. And on Black Sunday, uh, when the planes were covered with, with dirt, essentially just dumping dirt all over everyone so that they had to uh, dig their cars out. People had to get in their cars as they were coming back from her grandmother's funeral mm -hmm. and then stay there until the dust storm passed over and then they had to dig their cars out. Um, people covered their mouths with cloth, just like you see uh, when you go to the doctor and people are, yeah. you know, they're covering, they're, they're trying to avoid viruses. Um, they had to walk around like that and a lot of people died on the planes much sooner than they would have. That's crazy. You can't even escape it at that point. It's leaking into the homes and I think most of those farmhouses weren't particularly well insulated <laughs> so there's really no way to escape that i just i'm thinking about a snowstorm but with dirt yeah <laughs> just, exactly like, how do you how do you get away from that yeah and that and that you know the snowstorm it melts um but with the dirt it just seeped under the doors and through the windows um and it was completely unavoidable and this went on for years and years and years for people mm -hmm. um and in the meantime they they uh, were no longer able to grow enough food um, the government had to, you know, have other kinds of food. They had plenty of wheat <laughs> stored away. Um, but the government uh, under FDR actually provided incentives um, for people not to plant, um, to be rid of things like that. I don't know if you remember the scene about rabbits. Um, the planes were overrun with rabbits. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. So they actually. Those, those big jackrabbits, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The big jackrabbits that also ja impacted the environment. Not jackalopes, though. Not jackalopes. Okay. No, 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 no antlers no. on the on these ones. <laughs> okay, okay. Fortunately for the people of the plains. No, but they they had people going out with baseball bats. They actually um, had big events where people would go out with baseball bats and then just kill all these rabbits. It was it was another really horrific experience that people had. I bet during and and the wow. government was actually supporting this because it was impacting the environment. So one of the things that um, under FDR that happened was the Agricultural Adjustment Act that provided the incentives to stop planting through subsidies. So I mentioned that earlier, but not as specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and initially, the creation of the Soil Conservation Service under Hugh Hammond Bennett, um, who was a soil scientist. Uh, so this was in the early 1930s when the Soil Conservation Service was created. Mm -hmm. um, it actually ties in with the Civilian Conservation Corps. So the Civilian Conservation Corps um, employed young men ages 18 to 25, uh, another one of those big programs that you hear a lot about, or maybe you don't if you don't study history, but um, it actually uh, employed these young men, uh, paid them 25 
pay their families $25 a month, paid them $5 a month. Um, it was administered by the Army, and they went out and did things like conservation in the Pacific Northwest Forest. So they did tree replanting. Um, they built Louisville Park structures. You see mm -hmm. evidence of the CCC all over the place here in the Pacific Northwest. Well, on the Great Plains, um, they sent these young men out to actually replant seed um, to build, to dig trenches to stop the dust. Uh, so the CCC was actually part of the Soil Conservation Service and okay. then also the National Park Service. So conservation was really important during that era. Mm -hmm. And when the Soil Conservation Service was created, the government initially um, provided $160,000 for it. A few years later, under, under the National Industrial Recovery Act, another $5 million was provided for soil conservation. And so the idea of soil conservation... Um, is really, I think it's really interesting because yeah. you can't conserve one little area of land and not conserve the land around it. Mm -hmm. You have to actually restore the soil um, in large areas that are contiguous. Yeah. And so it was a massive effort um, to restore the soil. And it took many, many years. And it took the federal government intervention because you couldn't rely on private farmers to... Um, to do what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. It you know it took a massive army of young men to dig and replant um, and to irrigate the land in order to uh, retrench the the wheat mm -hmm. onto the land. I think that's that's an important point because government can overcome. You know when you're talking about trying to get a bunch of people to do something. Um, together in a cooperative way, there's so many coordination problems. And the federal government, having the amount of resources that it has, can really overcome those coordination problems. When you're talking, you can't really rely on private farmers. It, it would be really hard for a whole conglomerate of private farmers to come up with the path forward in an agreement, like an agreement, like get together and come to a consensus. The federal government can act a lot quick, a lot more quickly. And we're talking about the environment, having the ability to act quickly in a coordinated way um, to get people to do things that they may not otherwise do is really is you know I think that's a, a key point to um, the role of government within environmental policy. Right. When you have massive large scale projects, so for example, the building of the big dams on the Columbia River, which is something that I'm very familiar with, mm -hmm. um, it takes large scale government funding. Um, these are not things that can be done by private industry, which is why you had private industry actually lobbying for big dams on the Columbia River from small towns. Mm -hmm. um, there's another aspect of this that I think is really interesting that has to do with the Soil Conservation Service, and um, that is that in um, you know in places like Texas and Oklahoma and Colorado, but especially Texas and Oklahoma, you had both African-American and white farmers. And so one of the things that the Soil Conservation Service did earlier than any of the other conservation agencies was that it employed African-Americans mm. um, as soil scientists. And so some of the first natural resource professions for African-Americans, um, by the 1960s, there were actually soil scientists who had been at work in places like that for many years because wow. they worked with African-American communities, which kind of speaks to something that I'm interested in, and that's representation. Sure. Yeah. And that was what your um, your doctoral thesis was on, right? Was bureaucratic representation right in yeah. in the in the u.s forest service, in the US forest service. so okay. but the soil so I, I haven't explored the soil conservation service as much as i would like to but i mm -hmm. wrote about it a little bit okay. but I, I think it's really interesting when you think about that importance the importance of the um the contiguous lands and getting people to work with you um mm. to actually replant the soil and, and restore the soil um, representation made a difference as yeah. early as the 1940s. They were doing that in the 1940s, hiring 
um, they were hiring people who were people of color. That's absolutely amazing. I that's a uh, that's a really interesting piece of history that honestly I I um I just have a little bit of uh, background in, but. Um, it's great that you're here to kind of um, explain that all to us. Um, I just kind of wanted to, uh, I guess, move on a little bit from the Dust Bowl um, and talk about more recent um, uh, environmental policy. In, in the 1970s, I think um, you have a major shift towards more federal bureaucracy, kind of consolidating all of the um, different environmental agencies that the federal government had um, you know, created over the years in the EPA. And that was, um, it's originally originated in 1970 under the NEPA um, by President Nixon. Um, <clears throat> so what that ended up doing, let me check my notes here, was that it, it was signed into law by President Nixon. It established a comprehensive environmental policy at the federal level, created the requirement to prepare an environment impact statement for major federal actions significantly affecting the quality of the environment. So I think you can definitely see um, how the, you know, the Dust Bowl was being such this massive environmental uh, catastrophe, really even decades later influencing you know, federal, federal policy. Um, and then first environmental laws uh, were passed regulating air and water pollution, and then that ultimately led to what, what the EPA is you know, today. Well, and there, there were a whole series of events that occurred even in between the Dust Bowl and the creation of the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, in 1970. So there were things like the Cuyahoga River catching on fire. Um, pollution, I think, is really, really difficult for us to envision these days unless we've looked at it closely or mm -hmm. studied it. So for example, um, gravel used to be sprayed with, um, with oil that would seep into waterways before the Clean Air, before the Clean Water Act. Mm -hmm. um, so you have the passage of the Clean Air and the Clean Water Act, and also the Endangered Species Act, all at around the same time, between 1970 and 1973. Okay. Um, and that's because there were these huge impacts um, to the environment that had to do with things like spraying DDT. Um, Rachel Carson had written the book in 1963, Silent Spring, um, and she talked about the biological amplification of of chemicals like DDT. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have a little, um, an amoeba that is impacted by a chemical, um, each creature that eats it, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that, that's how I think about this biological amplification, mm -hmm. um, you know, up the, the chain, the, the chain of life, um, it actually increases within the cells. So people were becoming aware of those things and pushing for, um, environmental change. So 1970, you had the first Earth Day. And that's why I started my story with actually the 1980s, because I lived in Vancouver, Washington. I, I know that there was an Earth Day um, event here in Vancouver, but it was really kind of minimal in this area. It was an agricultural community. Mm -hmm. um, and so people, um, people practiced some sustainable um, kinds of activities, but they also, you know, they use things like, um, like oil and they used pesticides in their fields mm -hmm. and they did it in order to, um, you know, sustain their own ways of life. And yeah. that was really important. So, um, so there's this real tension between federal policy, right. And these laws that actually yeah. impact individuals without perhaps as much understanding of the environmental impacts um, that I gained from environmental biology. Sure. And that, that brings up, a. Kind of um, a, a topic that I've been thinking about as we're talking about kind of this uh, global and local kind of dichotomy is that you have so much at the macro level trying to address environmental policy without taking into without taking into um, without thinking about how that affects 
affects local populations and the individuals who probably know their environment much more intimately than, say, a major government you know structure. And I think you run into this a lot with the IMF. And we were discussing this before uh, we started this episode was the IMF and the World Bank Group, which are these international organizations that have uh, mechanisms built into their structure to try to deal with climate change. But what does that do to changing of... Um, of indigenous farming practices and effects that that has on, you know, especially in the developing world, where in order to get the funding necessary, they have to use these really cookie cutter approached policies, but that actually ends up having a detrimental effect over, over time. Have you studied anything about, you know, how that, how that affects indigenous populations? Yeah. Um, years ago, I actually had the good fortune to be a grader for a course called Human Issues and in International Development. And one of the things that we looked at was the ways in which the Green Revolution of the late 1960s, which essentially started this whole process that you're talking about um, with new and exciting farming practices to um, change the ways that people grew food, um, had impacted different groups of people differently. So I'm thinking of Indonesia, for example, where people use terracing practices. Mm -hmm. um, so they would plant they would plant root vegetables and things on the sides of hills um, because the water would run down the hill, right? And yeah. so it would water it would water the things below them. There's minimal water in so, in some parts of mm -hmm. um, of Indonesia. And so um, some of those practices were changed with large-scale farming. So there's the implementation of large-scale scale farming that actually changed the ways that people had traditionally planted food for centuries. You know, there's also major benefits. So if you think about uh, the Nile River that we used to always hear about, um, you know, rising and falling and how it would, um, you know, create the sort of sediment and rich soil for mm -hmm. planting. Well, when they built the uh, Aswan Dam, the high Aswan Dam, that completely changed the environment. Um, so you no longer have the same rise and fall of the rivers and the um, the regeneration of the soil in mm -hmm. the same ways as yeah. it happened. So you could also feed larger populations, but eventually there's the depletion of the soil. There are problems with dams that have to do with things like sedimentation. Um, they don't last forever. So, yeah. um, so there's this sort of dual occurrence of um, major technological innovation that provides the ability to feed people, you know, uh, worldwide, but also has tremendous impacts on those smaller, on, on those populations that maybe aren't identified in that way. Mm. So it creates, it creates a structure where corporations benefit by being able to sell food um, to people who previously may have grown it themselves. Um, you know, then there are issues of drought. Every environment is unique. Yeah, and so and and human populations have developed for centuries, um, for hundreds of thousands of years, in you know in sync with their environments. Yeah. That all changes in the end of the twentieth century. Yeah, with the massive application of technology. Hmm. Well, that's <laughs> that's definitely something to uh, to think on. I think we're going to take a quick break though, and when we come back, we're going to discuss more of the policy tools um, and. Uh, the implementation currently of, uh, of environmental policy and talk about some of the institutions that are um, available internationally that deal with, uh, with the, the issues that we've been talking about. I am uh, Jake Jokum with To The Republic, and you're listening on KXRW. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. 
Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Carpet City of Vancouver is a local flooring business and family-owned for 44 years. Flooring options include carpet, hardwood, laminate, tile, stone, and countertops. Carpet City of Vancouver is more than just a flooring specialty store. They are expert trained in flooring and design for kitchens, living rooms, bedrooms, and bathrooms. Carpet City of Vancouver can help you find the floor for the way you want to live. More information available at www.carpetcityofvancouver.com. Support for KXRW comes from David's Trains, buyer and collector of old toy trains, including Lionel, Flyer, Ives, and Marks. He is interested in old transportation-related toys as well as toy trains from the late 1800s to the 1960s. For appraisal, you can call him at 360-576-1602. That's 360-576-1602. Welcome back to To The Republic. I am Jake Jokum, and I am joined by Dr. Donna Sinclair and John Oberg. We, are, we have been talking about environmental policy. In the last two segments, we've talked about the Dust Bowl um, and then also a lot of national policy that, are, you know, that derived from that environmental catastrophe. Uh, John, during the break, you and I were talking, um, and yeah, I thought you had a great point. So if you wanted to uh, kind of expand on that a little bit. Well, sure. I mean, we're talking about the environment and everything. And of course, one of the biggest things that I've seen is, you know, it's the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, that did start over in Europe, but we as a country here really made the most of it during the first part of the 20th, first sure. and last part of the 20th century. And we've created a lot of this environmental damage, as we've seen here with the Dust Bowl and, mm -hmm. and, and many other things. And so we, in my humble opinion, we do need to be the leaders in, in fixing it. And also, too, one of the things is, is that we are the major consumers in the world. Yeah. And so there are um, things being produced in Asia, South America, Middle East, or whatever, that we're consuming, and it's causing their environment to fall apart. And so we need to be also thinking of that. And I think that was kind of going into what you were going to talk about, Donna. Yeah. Um, you know, I've thought a lot about this, and... Um, the United States has some really special qualities. So we're innovative, yeah. right? We have created um, amazing technology, and we've applied that to the land on a massive scale. So I, I always come back to the dams because it's such mm -hmm. a great example. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what you're talking about, John, um, we are also, because of our, um, our ethos, our individualistic ethos, and our plentitude. So the United States is a place with a long... Um, history of expansion. We have a lot of land. We have a lot of resources. It's part of what makes us so powerful. Um, but it's also part of what gives us a responsibility to the rest of the world, um, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so I mentioned earlier that um, that in the 1980s, when I was in Europe, I noticed that, you know, there were already sustainability efforts about things like using bleach in the water, because they're Countries are so much smaller. They can't just expand. They can't just um, pollute without thinking about the future consequences. And there are centuries and centuries of large numbers of people who are there. So um, the 20th century is a time when we had a, a massive um, technological boom in so many different ways. Uh, and so there's some people who think that that means that we can actually cope with any sort of environmental destruction. Um, you know, and there are others who are who are uh, you know worried about the end of the world. Um, I think that we have a responsibility to look at these 
environmental issues very closely and to think about our connection to the rest of the world. And, and I was mentioning earlier, uh, we, we mentioned the Paris Climate mm-hmm. Accord, for yeah. example, pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. Well, I see that as, um, you know, sort of similar to the Dust Bowl. So we, you cannot have parts of the world that are, um, that are polluting massively and other parts that aren't and actually expect to address climate change. And by the way, there's absolutely no question in my mind or in the mind of um, at least 98% of the scientists in this country and around the world mm-hmm. that climate change is a catastrophic problem waiting to happen or actually happening. <laughs> it's not <laughs> right. even waiting to happen. It's, hap- right. it's happening right now. We're seeing it all over the place. And yeah. so it's, um, it's, it's difficult. John, did you want to add something? Yeah, well, I was just thinking that I was took a class not too long ago at WSU, and one of the things that they uh, had us do in there was to take this survey based on, you know, what I do as far as, like, how I drive, where I live, what, um, you know, energy sources I use and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, and at the very end, it added it all up and compared to, like, other people in my area. And it said that we were going to need, in order to sustain that, seven Earths. To be able to uh, continue that, to sustain that level. And, of course, we wow. don't have seven Earths. We have one. And yeah. So, obviously, the United States needs to, you know, take a, a hard look at what they're mm-hmm. doing and everything. Because, uh, at the end of the day, it's going to take away from other other peoples in other parts of the world. Yeah. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's interesting because the United States has, for so long, especially in the post-World War II era, the United States has championed itself as this, you know, global leader um, in promoting human rights and promoting these really normative ideas and being that kind of like that shining light on the hill, right? It's really right. encompassed that into its identity and how it's at, interacted abroad. Different administrations have obviously, you know, have either used that as window dressing or actually tried to use that and implement it in actual policy. Right. Uh, but it's been kind of this driving notion of the United States. And it's interesting now that the world is facing with one of its, probably its biggest challenge of all time. And you have the United States kind of re-entrenching itself and saying, you know, no, thank you. We're going to take care of our own borders. But it's interesting. It's, it's also difficult, though, at a, at the international level when you have trying to force sovereign states to do things without a, without government presiding over the top. And we were talking about how the federal government could come into the Dust Bowl and within several years implement all of these policies and be kind of that coordinating um, leviathan sitting over the top of all of these individuals and agencies and, and getting them to do things in, a, in an orderly manner. That doesn't exist at the international level. So climate policy is so incredibly difficult to try to get all of these sovereign nations that other than force, using force to try to get them to get to adopt policies that could hurt, that are, be costly to their economies. Trying to implement um, environmental restrictions does have effects and creates inefficiencies in industry. So trying right. to convince a powerful nation to adopt these policies, especially if they don't feel like they're competitive, and they're worried about relative gains, right? So as China's rising, the United States is worried about how that's going to affect their security. So if you're if you're going to, and if you tie material interests to security, if you're limiting your security by impl- imp- by putting your you know handcuffs on yourself. These environmental policies. What is that going to do for your survivability in a system where you're only responsible for your own survival? And that's just kind of a theor- real theoretical international relations look at at this. But I think it, it really it, it touches on how difficult trying to implement policies at the at the international level is is really hard. And I think some of the the most recent attempt to address these internationally is the Paris Climate Accord, which the United States has removed itself from. Right. 
Have you guys looked at the Paris Climate Accords that much, or um, fairly? I haven't looked at it that closely, okay. um, but but on a philosophical level, mm-hmm. um, that's why I introduced the idea of the um, the massive innovation that Americans have actually introduced into the world. Um, I see this as an opportunity, um, not. You know, not something that censures us for the environment. We have massive opportunity right now to engage in technological innovation. Mm-hmm. If we, if our government were to invest in that, to actually deal, help others deal with climate change and deal with it ourselves mm-hmm. um, by introducing things like you know solar power, um, instead of rem- of creating tariffs on solar panels. Um, you know, we should first invest in creating solar technology. That's yeah. one major source of power that mm-hmm. we have. Yeah. Um, so um, if you have some things you want to say about the Paris Climate Accord, oh, no. um, I'm, I'm happy to hear them. Um, but I'm, I'm not very happy right now <laughs> <laughs> with, with our positionality in the world. We have been a leader on so many issues, mm-hmm. and we have the opportunity to remain leaders. Yeah. Um, the idea that, that we're, people are going to say, um, you know, we're just going to re-entrench ourselves um, in isolation against isolationism, which is something that we've had, you know, off and on over the, over the centuries. We've yeah. actually had isolationism. So the pendulum mm-hmm. swings, right? Yes, it does. Um, unfortunately, it seems to me to be swinging in the wrong direction right now uh-huh. when we have the opportunity to lead in the world. And we were headed in that direction. Um I won't even go into why I think that's the case, but it has more to do with with almost with personal conflict than with the realities of the world mm-hmm. that we live in. Um, yeah. As far as I, that's what I see. That's what I observe. Definitely. So. Yeah, I think um, the United States does. I mean, if you if you we can talk about this on a normative sense. You know, the United States should be doing this because well, it's in the best interest of not only us because we're members of the world. If if that's not enough to persuade people. I think the point that you bring up that the United States has the ability here with climate, with, you know, green, new green sources of energy. And um, there's very, very historical precedent on power and revolutions of energy and how that's transpired throughout, you know, time. The country that has been at the forefront of energy of revolutions, you know, wood to coal, coal to fossil fuels, has been the global leader for you know the foreseeable future after that revolution has happened in the united states trying to reinvest in old energy technology and coal and fossil fuels it's it's having the adverse effect to what the stated goal is it's crazy yeah well and i, and I think too that i mean here in the northwest i mean here in especially in clark county we've just seen where uh we've gotten this the largest shipment of windmill blades in ever mm-hmm. and uh, that that's going to be a real positive for this area because of the fact that you know we're going to be seeing a larger increase in windmill generated electricity for this area but you know another thing that we may think about is is that how can we help um other countries you know obviously china and um other uh, southeast asian countries are huge on coal mm-hmm. india especially india mm-hmm. especially how can we help them to get off of coal? Now, maybe it's a transition thing, like you said before, where it was wood to coal, coal to fossil fuels, fossil fuels to something like that. Maybe we can help them to get from coal to, you know, a cleaner burning, like natural gas or mm-hmm. something, and then encourage them going forward to get to those sustainable, renewable energies. Yeah, and that get, that gets me into my point about that I want to bring up about international institutions is that, yes, there is damage we we talked about earlier about how these the cookie cutter approaches of of um 
a big a big you know government apparatuses can have on individuals but at the but on the macro scale they can have a positive effect and the IMF and the World Bank group have loan conditionality and they have man they're mandated within their structure to um, to help with development and if and especially with the World Bank and how they they determine the priority of their loans it has somewhat has a lot to do with how that particular project is going to meet sustainable development goals and you know they the world bank group as a policy now does not take on any will not lend to any project that has that has coal in it so that i think there is some positive steps being taken but as the united states starts to pull its investment from those institutions it's going to be limited on you know its effectiveness so really you know the united states has veto power at the imf it has veto power in a seat at the world bank group it has the ability to fundamentally change this environmental trajectory that we're on but it's it's you know currently choosing not to which i find very frustrating <laughs> and i try to be a, i try to be apolitical um but as we've been talking, I'm finding myself having a harder time not doing that. Well, being apolitical and actually evaluating the evidence before you, <laughs> right, right. Or, yeah. you know, cannot necessarily be mutually exclusive. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's it's important. I, I one of the things I wanted to raise. I don't know how much time we have left, but uh, one of the things I think is interesting that we should be thinking about is this whole idea of the Green New Deal. Now, people can poo-poo um, AOC as much as they want, but when you look back to the, uh, the Great Depression, mm-hmm. and you think about the kinds of investments that were made in conservation yeah. um, that were also economic investments mm-hmm. um, and technological investments, um, I think that those parallels are really interesting. So um, there's there are different ways that those things work out in, in local communities. Mm-hmm. I don't know, John, were you at the Green New Deal Town Hall in Vancouver? Um, about a month and a half or two. I don't know when it was. I was there, but I actually facilitated it. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, but I, I thoroughly agree with you. And the fact is, is that we, I, I think with any type of a, um, ideology or whatever, you should go big. Because with any, any kind of discussion in that, there is going to be compromise and there is going to be some working backwards um, to get everybody on board to something. But if you just start from the middle of the road, then you're, you're going to come in with less than that. So dream big and, and then see what you can go from there. That's sure. m- you right. know, my simple opinion. Yeah. I, have, you guys paid, have you guys seen everything that was going on in um, Salem with the proposed cap and trade? No, yeah. I wasn't. In, I wasn't Republic, paying attention to Oregon. Re, re, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>, Republicans <laughs> walk. Yeah. Well, Republican, no, I saw the Republicans yeah. walk out. Yeah. Yes, over um, over uh, a cap and trade proposal that was in the House of Representatives, and what cap and trade is just basically is that there's a determined amount of emissions that can be polluted into the air, and once that once that cap is set, each firm has an, an allotted amount of pollution that they can put into like credits. And, uh, credits and then once that um, once you've expended those credits you can no longer produce but you can buy from people it kind of creates like a market system you can buy from um, firms that have not used their entire allotment that's kind of the bra- the basic conceptual nature of that but that has caused all sorts of um, pushback locally so if you just think about how difficult it is to when you have a government structure to get people on board with environmental policy and then try to push that off to the international level, you can see how far we really have to come with not a lot of time to get there. Right. Um, and, and my son lives in the Willamette Valley and is dealing with allergies and asthma. 
Um, and it's terrible. He's having a terrible time with it because really? of where he lives. Yeah, because it's it's um, it's really bad there. Um, and I think your point is really important. Um, there's a couple of points that that I wanted to make, and it looks like we're going to run out of time here. But one is that you have places like India and China that mm-hmm. need to industrialize. There's no question about it. Yeah. They want to enter the modern world, mm-hmm. and they are, and there's no way that we can stop them. Um, so what we have the power over is what we do, just mm-hmm. like anything else in this world, right? <laughs> and so yeah. I think it's really important that we find ways to incentivize ourselves mm-hmm. and others um, on a global basis to yeah. actually create a clean and sustainable environment for the future for all of our children. Yeah, that's a great, that is a great point, and I think a great point to end on. Thank you guys so much for, uh, for joining me on this episode. It's been a great discussion. Um, love to have you guys back on at uh, at later date with Sounds whatever good. topic you guys want to talk about. Uh, th- I'm Jake Jokum, and you're listening to To the Republic on KXRW. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com where exercise is medicine. KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges and edibles, to CBD topicals, oils and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. Support for KXRW comes from the Ridgefield Raptors, Southwest Washington's own college summer wood bat baseball team, now offering group night packages. To find out more information on pricing and how to spend a night at the ballpark with your family, friends, coworkers, sports league, or special group, just call 360-887-0787 or visit the website at ridgefieldraptors.com. That's ridgefieldraptors.com.